Welcome to Beyond Sunday School, putting the New Testament in its place. Glad you are with us this week, and uh, yeah, we hope that you are doing well. Uh, We are uh, doing this live stream every Wednesday night, 7 o'clock. You can find it you know, pretty much anywhere um, that uh, that has live streams, and I'm seeing now that I've got this weird these lines on my face look like a zebra. Um, so, give me one second while I fix that because that just started in the last like 90 seconds. So, uh, hold on one second. <laughs> Must be blinds or something. Yeah. Live live streaming uh, for the win. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. All right. Um, So uh, you may have heard, uh, you know, some of the some of the voices there in the background. And uh, if you want to be in the room with me, so to speak, via Zoom, make sure you hit me up in a direct message or send me a text and uh, and we can make sure that that happens. Uh, so uh, we can get you into the Zoom room. Otherwise, uh, you are welcome to, uh, you know, simply... Uh, be here and watch and uh, via the via the live stream. Um, what I would uh, love to encourage you to do is as we spend some time talking and as we are going through this stuff tonight, you are uh, more than welcome to leave a comment and uh, ask a question. And so when you know when when I see those, those pop up in the comment stream. Uh, I will, I will be sure to answer them at some point here this evening. Probably, uh, I may, I may just kind of circle back. Um, but, uh, but would love to have your input. Would love to have your questions. And uh, yeah, would love to have you engaging in the conversation. So uh, for those in the Zoom room. They have the added advantage of being able to interrupt me and telling me, hey, shut up for a minute because we have a question. So, uh, so ladies here in the Zoom room with me would, you know, just want to remind you to, to be sure to do that, especially as, as we get rolling here and lots of words happen and uh, lots of information will be flowing. So, uh, quick reminder. Uh, we are using this text, uh, The New Testament in Its World by N.T. Wright and Michael F. Byrd as kind of our jumping off place for, uh, for our conversations uh, in putting the New Testament in its place. And last week, we kind of did an introduction, an overview a little bit of, of the New Testament. And this week, we are looking very specifically at uh, this question of, uh, you know, how do we, you know, how do we read the New Testament as history or why do we read the New Testament as history? Next week, we'll look at the New Testament as literature. And then the following week, we'll look at the New Testament as theology uh, before we go diving into some other, some other areas. So, uh, so let me, let me ask you guys a question, uh, which is, why do you think we need to read the New Testament 
as a historical document. Why do you why do you think we need to do that? So Zoom Room, you guys you guys are center stage. Why why do you think we need to read the New Testament as a historical document? Well, partly because some of the stories that are in there tell mm -hmm. us about the faithfulness of God and how he works in people's lives. Right. Good. Yeah. Any other thoughts? As a good Presbyterian, I'll say, hearing none, uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll, keep, we'll keep rolling on. Uh, so, you know, there's this, uh, there is this great quote that I really, really like uh, from, from the book. Uh, as, as he kind of opens this, this section on, on history up, they say, God has acted within the space-time universe, specifically in the dirt and drama of first century Palestine, to make good on his covenant promises to Israel by sending him in the likeness of human flesh. So, you know, one of the, one of the things is that, you know, the, the belief of the Christian movement throughout history has been that, um, you know, that everything that Jesus said and did and, and lived were, were historical events that they were rooted in, in reality. They were root, rooted in space, time. And, um, these were not things that were just, you know, uh, just pure myth or, or anything along those lines. You know, this was things, things happen in history. And so if we are going to be a people of the book, so to speak, and we are going to make claims about Jesus being rooted in history and uh, the claims of the gospel being rooted in history then we absolutely have to take history seriously. There's another quote uh, from a theologian, historian, a guy named George Caird. He says, Christianity appeals to history, and to history it must go. He wrote that in Jesus and the Jewish Nation in 1965. Um, and so if we really believe, if we really believe that you know God has revealed himself in the historical events behind the New Testament, then the New Testament, uh, the New Testament world must be very important to us. We must figure out and take the time to understand uh, what is what is going on uh, in in the context there of, of the New Testament in the world and the historical events behind, the New Testament. And, and so, and the other thing is that for the Christian, the New Testament is where we begin in discipleship. And so we, again, we have to understand its world if we are going to take, um, if we are going to take our, our study of the New Testament seriously. 
if we're going to to be able to try to dig into it and try to have some sense of understanding and comprehension uh, as opposed to merely taking the things of the New Testament and the Jesus of the New Testament and making kind of making it all in our image, right? And so uh, with and so with without understanding the history, uh, our lenses become the dominant, factor. We will only read the New Testament through the lens of, you know, a 21st century Western American Christian. And that's, you know, the the New Testament and its world are written to a very different audience. And so if we if we are going to move beyond our own lenses of understanding uh, that we have to do the we have to do the work of you know grappling with the New Testament as a historical document, and uh, and so that's that's it's so important uh, as as we dive in. Um, so how do we how do we approach it? Right, I mean that's that becomes um, a pretty important question. How do we, as we open up the New Testament, how do we approach the New Testament as a historical document? Uh, you know, what what are some of the approaches? And, you know, we're not going to go into, we're not going to do some deep dive uh, into the, uh, um, uh, we're not going to do a deep dive into the, like, historical methods of of historical of doing you know of doing history we don't have we don't have the time uh the reality is it's not very interesting stuff to look at different methodologies <laughs> that gets that gets to be like eating paste really quick uh, but we do have to do a we have to at least have some bearing in the realm of of history you know what what does what does that look like? How do we, uh, you know, how do we approach this this text? What what are some of the directions that we need to be looking at? We need to be aware of of some of these different approaches because when we when we seek to kind of dive in to history, when we seek to kind of move into that realm of learning and understanding, there are going to be different approaches. And and we want to be aware of what those approaches are. So uh, there are kind of three main schools of historical approach. Uh, the first one is what we might call rationalistic positivism uh which is uh, how's that for some for some quarter words right uh you know we we you can simplify and just say modern or modernity uh and and what we mean by that is there was an assumption uh in in this cultural approach historical approach uh, this modern approach that that was born out of the Enlightenment, uh, that that we could uh, that we could access historical truth by setting aside our presuppositions uh, 
in setting up proper methodology. So the the goal here, the driving desire that um, these guys had uh, was to um, was to try to take their all their presuppositions and get to an objective perspective on um, on history. And they thought they could do that via methodology. And so it was just kind of this whole thing of, all right, we're going to take, uh, we're going to try to identify as much of our own lens, as much of our own presupposition. We're going to move it over here. And we're going to try to counter all of that with good methods. And if we just use the right methods, then we are going to get to an objective, you know, pure, unfettered history. Now, um, and, and, and they talk about that as being a God's eye view, right? Like we're, we're going to kind of get this in a sense outside of time, outside of culture, outside of, of all these things that, that shape us. Uh, we're going to, we can do that by, by simply using proper methodology. And that's where we get the positivism, um, out of this, right? There's just this, this great hope that we could do that. The problem is there is no end to our subjectivity. There's no end to our presuppositions. There's no end to our lens. Even as we seek to, to put in methods to try to um, eliminate or at the very least kind of uh, discount our own lenses, our own perspectives. We're still the ones putting those methods in place. Uh, you know, uh, the methods are only as objective as those who create the methods. And so, ultimately, this modern, uh, the, the the modern approach falls short. The second thing, second approach, uh, is what we might call rationalistic pessimism, or postmodern. Um, now rationalistic pessimism or post-modernity, they see everything, all of reality, uh, being enmeshed in the interpretive process. And what, what that means is every, they understand that, uh, in light of this reality that none of us can be totally objective. That means that everything, every data point, every Every part of history, every aspect of history is, is colored by our interpretation of it. And so it's almost like anarchy because, because there's no such thing as nobody's point of view. Um, there's no, since there's no such thing as true objectivity, uh, then every fact, every th everything in history, everything in the past is simply an interpretation. And there is no way to ever possibly access historic reality. Um, and because everything then being rooted in interpretation is rooted in power and language games. You interpret the historical data one way so that your tribe can be in power. You you interpret the language so that you can you can stay in power, so that you can have control. This is this rationalistic pessimism or postmodern postmodern approach. You know, you, you catch phrases 
uh, things like, you know, only the winners write the history, right? So it's everything is shaded. Um, and we can't ever possibly get to any sense of historical realism. Problem at that, you know, and and unfortunately, I mean that that's just that's a big part of how a lot of folks look at history today. But I think, but I, I'm not I'm not satisfied with that, and a lot of other scholars aren't satisfied with that. This idea that there is no true knowing, uh, and so this brings us to our third. Our third uh, way of engaging with history, which is known as critical realism. And uh, so we want to go just a little bit deeper into critical realism. Uh, so how do, we, how do we understand this? Well, uh, first, it's the acknowledgement of reality of the thing known as something other than the knower. So this is the realism part. That is, it, it sounds, I know it sounds so, so goofy. Um, it's, a, it's, it's so technical there. But basically what it's saying is history is real. And it's separate from our perception of it. So there really was a World War II. There really were concentration camps. There really was a civil war. These things were real events that we have access to that are separate from our our interpretation, our perceptions of them, right? So they are they are separate and distinct. Now, the the postmodern view of approaching history would say, mm, no, you can't understand any of those historical events. Um, Truly, because they're just completely wrapped up in your interpretation of them or your perception of them. There is no distinction between the thing known and the knower. And so, so they're not real anymore. They're just, they're just games that we play. And so critical realism wants to push back on that and say, no, there's, there's something real there. But it's also critical. And so it challenges the, the modernist approach, because it acknowledges that access to the reality, the historical reality, is through appropriate conversation between the knower and the thing known. So what is, gosh, what, is, what does that mean? Well, it's, um, it's this idea that, um, that we make... Uh, that we, that we make historical hypotheses, right? So just like in science, you make a hypothesis, you test the hypothesis, you determine whether that hypothesis is true or false. If it's true, it goes to a peer review and others look at that hypothesis and test it and try to see if it's how that, how that works out. And so this is what we need to be doing uh, with with history, right? So so the goal, the goal of history of doing this uh, of engaging with the New Testament as as history uh, is not to come to necessarily to come to absolute claims. That's what the modern approach is trying to do. They want you know they think they can come to an absolute claim about this thing that happened back here. And, and the critical realist approach says, well, because this thing happened back here and because there are, 
you know, we do have lenses, we do have perceptions, we do interpret events differently. Uh, we can't, we can't make absolute claims about this. Uh, but, but on the other hand, we also uh, can't just slide into the postmodern understanding of things, which which are anarchic interpretations, right? Just pure anarchy. There is no meaning. There is no way to to actually understand or grasp any kind of of real sense of of historic reality. The postmodern just says there's it's just anarchy. There's there's just meaningless. And so we say, no, there's a reality there that we can access, but we have to engage with it. And so what we're trying to get to with our historical approach to the New Testament is what we would call, what we would say is adequate knowledge, right? We want to try to understand this historic reality adequately. We want to try to understand it as best as possible. And so what do we do? We make hypotheses. We, we try to take all of the historical data that we have and, and try to get as, as much of it on the table as, as possible. The, and so as we, as we get this data on the table, as we, as we take in the historic historical insights and facts as we, uh, you know, as, and, and then as new data, as new historical data emerges and new interpretations of that data emerge, we're able to apply those back to our hypotheses and test them and keep going back. And we, and what happens is we end up in a dialogue, right? We end up in a dialogue with the data, with the interpretations and, and what and what we do with with these with the data and the interpretation is it is it begins to to shape our understanding and we're able to go oh okay what I thought back here was was right it's not right um, or it needs to be tweaked a little bit or changed a little bit um, you know and and the data helps us do that and because we're holding this not as an absolute fact and not as just an anarchic, you know, an anarchy based interpretation, but we're holding this as a hypothesis. We're able to test it. We're able to tweak it. We're able to add to our knowledge, clarify our knowledge so that we can have an adequate knowledge of, of history. And, and so as we, as we do that, um, what we begin what we begin to see and begin to understand about, about what we're doing uh, in this process is, is we become storytellers. And there's this, this great line, uh, this, this quote, uh, Wright and Bird on page 58. They say, listen, as historians then, we are principally storytellers trying to get inside the story lives of ancient peoples filled with diverse and often competing stories and constructing our own successful explanatory story to account for theirs. So as we are engaging in the conversation with the data, 
what happens is we begin to see these underlying narratives, these underlying stories, because really that's what that's what history is, right? It's it's the story of humanity. It's the story of people. And and so we write that down so that we remember it. And so so as we read the New Testament, as we engage with it, we are engaging these stories that people have written down. And so we look at things like, you know, Paul's letters in the New Testament, and we uh, and we wrestle with those, and we and we kind of tie those back and look look at the Gospels and look at the life of Jesus and connect them to what Paul was writing about, and we try to figure out how does how how are these stories connected, and then how do our stories connect back into into these stories right like we talked about last week this idea of the new testament being a you know being a a play and we're in the final act but we don't have a script and so what we're doing is is for us to access that the 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 script that's already been written is we got to get back into their stories we got to figure it out and it's so it's kind of like when you you know you start you start reading something and you go like uh, you know Paul's description of Jesus in in Colossians chapter one, you know, beginning in verse fifteen and fifteen through twenty. It's this this beautiful poem, um, you know, about who Jesus is as the Son of God. And it's just this beautiful, beautiful poem. We do a little bit of history, and you find out that that same poem, almost word for word, is applied to the emperor. <laughs> And so, and so all of a sudden the story has a whole new layer and depth and color where it's like, oh, Paul is saying that Jesus is the true emperor. He's the true son of God, not the guy sitting in Rome. And it becomes this, this beautiful subversive thing. And, and you realize that this poem is also a, and hymn in the early church and they're singing this. And, and so like, it just, it adds the layers as we as we begin to become storytellers. And so as a result, therefore, a chief task of New Testament study is to construct a hypothesis which explains the story of the first Christians within the storied world of Jews, Greeks, and Romans. So so we have to understand that that this document we're looking at, this historical document that we're looking at, written in a specific time and in a specific place to a specific people, all living out these different stories and worldviews. And we have to take all of that data in and try to construct a hypothesis that, that makes sense of all of it. And as we do, our scriptures come to life. They become, they become something even more beautiful. They become something even more rich. They become something that, you know, challenges us and 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 makes us makes us wrestle in all new ways. And and so as we as we dive into the history thing, uh, and the the history behind the New Testament, the stories behind the New Testament, or the stories, you know, 
in specifically the stories behind the gospels or the stories behind the the letters that are written by Paul, Peter, James, John, uh, the author to the Hebrews, those stories, those stories help us understand and comprehend more deeply. And then we begin to figure out how our story connects to their story and we and we're able to live live out the scriptures. They begin to disciple us in a new, even more specific kind of way. So um, so all of this stuff, you know, approaching the approaching the New Testament as history uh, can can feel very overwhelming, right? Um, and it kind of it could make you you know kind of feel like, oh, why do why even try? Like uh, there's just so much. Just let's just wait for the book report on Sundays from the guy we pay. Um, but you know the the information is out there. Uh, the books are out there. There are things that we can access together, and there are things that we can that we can do together, um, and we can talk about this. And this is this is part of why we do things like Beyond Sunday School, so that so that we can all learn together. Now, uh, what I thought would be would be fun um, is to just kind of take a look here uh, at one little tiny passage as a case study, right? Why, how would, how would knowing history help us um, maybe catch a more beautiful view of, of the text or a more multicolored view of the text or um, maybe just give us some deeper insight or maybe even challenge the way that, that we have thought about a particular text. So, uh, Let's look together at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verses 13 through 17. And uh, I, I went ahead and put it on slides to read through this first time before we kind of dig into it a little bit. Uh, so if you have a Bible, it'd be great to you know open it up and look, uh, follow along. But you can also just follow along here on the screen with, with the text. And so it's, it's this famous text uh, that... Uh, this famous story of, of Jesus uh, who's being challenged. And uh, it goes like this. It says, Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. So they're setting a trap, right? They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. So, uh, you know, most of us, most most time we read this, and a lot of times we look at that and go, okay, so we, we need to pay our taxes. 
<laughs> Simple as that, right? Like that's that's just what's going on there. Well, maybe or maybe not. Maybe there's something else going on here. And and why was that a trap? Right? Like we have to ask that question. They're here to set a trap. So why why was it a trap? How does the trap work? And this is why we need to know history. This is why, you know, in the in the words of the great theologian Paul Harvey, we need the rest of the story. So it goes like this. First, if you, you know, if we had read some Josephus, who was a, uh, you know, historian, we would find out that at Jesus, at, during this time, um, the Galileans had a motto, no king but God. They were, uh, you know, they were not big fans of King Herod, the Herodians who were there with the Pharisees, you know, these, these guys who weren't necessarily pals or buddies. Um, they had teamed up here to trap Jesus. Uh, we also wouldn't know that if we didn't know history, right? We need to know that, you know, the Pharisees and the Herodians getting together. Uh, this is kind of, you know, like, you know, Michigan fans and Ohio State fans getting together to make Michigan State fans look silly. I mean, this is <laughs> this is this is what's going on here, right? Um, so the Galileans had this motto, no king but God. And so if Jesus says, pay, just just pay your taxes. You should pay the tax. The Galileans call him a sellout. They say, oh man, he has he has sold out to um you know to to Herod, he sold out to the emperor, he sold out to Rome. Not okay, Jesus. Not okay. You're just you're just a dirty sellout. Well, what about the other side? Not paying taxes. So if Jesus says, don't pay the tax, well, that's sedition against the state, which is the very charge that finally gets Jesus crucified by the Herodians. You know, in the, the, you know, at the Mount of Olives, this is, this is what, when they arrest him, this is the charge. They, they say he was, you know, he was committing sedition against the state. So if Jesus says, pay, he's a sellout. If he says, don't pay, then he's he's committing sedition. He's committing treason. Well, all right. So <laughs> what happens? How does he get out of it? Well, first he doesn't bluff. There's no bluff. This is this is the beauty of Jesus right here. He says, "Give me a coin." Now this coin, uh, based on Jesus's description. Uh, you know, he says, hey, whose image is on it? And it's got Caesar. So this coin was likely a tribute coin with Caesar on one side and his mother uh, posing as the goddess Roma on the other side. And so uh, at this time, there were tons of different coins that were floating around and that kind of thing. And, um, and so what the Herods had done is they had made uh, tribute coins to kind of show and prove how, you know, how committed they were to the emperor so much so that, that his face was on their coins. So he says, Hey, okay. So we've got Caesar who, you know, many believe is divine. You've got his mother who's acting 
like the goddess Roma. So why is that a problem? Well, <laughs> if Caesar is divine, then this is a violation of the second commandment. So Galileans, there's you know, no king but God, and yet here you are walking around with an abomination in your pocket. You know, you're breaking the second commandment. What's up with that, guys? That's a problem, right? This is this is a significant issue. Um, so if you want to be all spiritually pure and kind of have all the answers, you know, you're missing you're missing it here. And so, you know, this so that's that's one that's one bit. Um, so yeah, simply carrying this coin is a front to God. And as a result, give it back. He's saying, he's not, Jesus here isn't saying necessarily pay your taxes. He's saying this coin you carry is an affront to God. So what should you do? Give it back. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. That's, that, that could be one way that he's, that he's kind of getting out of this is, is he's just saying, Hey, you know, you guys are, you guys are blowing this. Or he could be saying that Caesar should get everything he deserves, including retribution. And we, and, and we get this potential interpretation of this moment in the life of Jesus because of this phrase, pay the Gentiles in full, which was uttered by Judas Maccabeus um, when they were, uh, you know, when they were revolting against Rome and they were fighting fighting uh, before Jesus's time when they were trying to, to rise up. And so, you know, this knowing, knowing our history and, and then you have, you know, Jesus kind of doing a play on this pay the Gentiles in full, which for the Maccabees was we're going to war. Let's, let's roll. And so Jesus could be saying here, you know, give Caesar everything he deserves give it all back and it's just uh so it could be very much be a you know a confrontational kind of thing here um where he's where he's just deeply challenging the uh the structures of of rome and and making kind of making a call making a challenge to to folks saying yeah pay it all back give him what he deserves even to the point of of retribution so there's there's a lot more going on in this one little story than um than just uh you know than just yeah hey be a good be a good citizen pay your taxes we get all of the color. We get all of the, all of these, these twists and turns in the in the picture of the story, by doing some work in history, by by approaching this moment in time, uh, as as a piece of history, and, and 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 you begin to see how these different stories begin to come together, and they begin they begin to to help you take you know, help the text take shape. And, and we, and it's just an absolutely beautiful thing. So, uh, 
to kind of bring this to a conclusion, three things that we need to, that I think we need to kind of to grasp first is the study of the New Testament as history is, is not optional. It's not, it's not a thing that we say, well, maybe I'll get to it. If we are going to be a people of the book, and if we are going to say that Jesus showed up here in the context of history, then approaching and studying the New Testament as history is not an optional work. We have to take that seriously. We have to do the work because it helps us understand what is going on in, in the context of, of the New Testament that we're studying, that we want, that, that we are going to use to shape our lives. The second thing uh, is that we need to be aware of the complexities of historical study. And trying, and if we attempt to practice critical realism, it helps us to do that, right? If we, as we do this work in history, as we seek to study it, as we seek to engage it, then what it does is uh, by practicing kind of this critical realism of, of understanding that we're in conversation and we're in dialogue with stories of the past and our story now, and, and we're taking this data and we're trying to understand it, um, it helps, it helps us avoid uh, falling into the two, the two ditches on either side of the road of, of historical study. That of the modernist um, that says we can have absolute certainty and that of the postmodernist that says we can have nothing. We have, there is no meaning. It's just anarchy. Uh, critical realism says, no, there's a middle road here where we're not going to hold things in absolute certainty, but we're going to, we can have adequate real knowledge of history. And then the third thing is we have to recognize the past is a different place. We have to do the work. There are gaps between their story and our story, their culture and our culture. And the gaps are real. And it is, and it is okay for those, for those gaps to be real. It is, it is okay um, that, that as we read it, we might kind of go, ooh, what's going on here? We have to keep digging deep. And, and, and we have to acknowledge that the past is different than the present. And, uh, and so we have, we have to do the work. So, uh, you know, all that to say, yeah, if we're going to take the Bible seriously, that means that we have to, we have to take it seriously as a new test, as, as a historical document, as, as something that was written in history. And, uh, and that's, and that's not a bad thing. That's, it's actually a really good thing. And, uh, and so as we, as we do that, we will learn more and the text will come alive and it will just, ah, uh, it just has so much more color and, uh, and it's so much richer and deeper than we could ever possibly imagine. So, uh, you know, as we're, so we're, we're wrapping up here. Uh, it doesn't look like, doesn't look like there's anybody watching, uh, online. Um, so, uh, 
for you know for ladies for those of you in the in the the zoom room uh do you have any do you have any questions thoughts things that are kind of running through your head here as we're um as we're wrapping this session up so if we were going to look at that story from mark from the perspective only of the 20th century mm -hmm. how would we be looking at it compared to what you just explained yeah i, I mean i think I think if we were looking at it purely purely from our vantage point, we would look at it and say, just real simple, Jesus says paid taxes. Pay your taxes. And don't don't try to dodge them. Don't try to uh, get out from underneath them. Your responsibility is to pay your taxes. So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then, he, but then we'd also probably say, he also says give to God what is God's. Therefore, make sure that you're tithing. Make sure that you're you're giving a good chunk of change to the church, uh, which is often how uh, this text gets used, right? Is, um, you know, hey, you guys pay your taxes, you obey the law, but are you giving to God what is God's, right? Are you, are you turning around and, and giving God what he deserves? Uh, so, uh, you know, so I think we can, I think we can miss some of, of, of the real true intended meaning or story that's that's going on there um because jesus is you know jesus is being they're, they're seeking to trap him and so if it's just as simple as, as as pay your taxes that's not much of a trap and uh and so when we when we take the take the whole story seriously and we take the whole history seriously it just it opens the whole thing up does that make sense yeah cool yeah cool cool other thoughts? Might have to let that soak in a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was this for, was a complicated for my simple minded brain. <laughs> that was a little bit it's above me. <laughs> it's there's a lot there, right? Um it but I think but I think this is where you know we can I think if we if we can understand that there are if we can realize that there are some great tools out there that can help us do this work, um, then uh, then it I think it becomes a bit more manageable, right? So you can grab a get a really good study Bible, you know, like the um, the ESV study Bible is, is excellent, or the NIV study Bible. Both are, are excellent. Their, their study notes are very helpful um, to help you access some of this. Um, there are Bible handbooks that are, that are really helpful to help you dig into the history a, a little bit. Um, you know, there's, there's a really great tool um, I think it's called like the uh, the NIV cultural something or other. I'll, I'll put some links in the in the notes um, on the podcast episode and on the YouTube um, description and all that kind of stuff uh, with with some links to some books that that are just helpful things to put in your in your library. Um, okay. be, yeah. So those would be the like you mentioned the ESV Study Bible and NIV Study Bible. Those are different than uh, the Life Application Bible. Right. 
Yep. So the the ESV Study Bible and NIV Study Bible, um, you know, the Life Application Bible is 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 also helpful, uh, but what it does is it tends to try to help you. And I don't want to say skip steps, but it it tries to help you get to that place of of life application, thus the life application Bible, um, yeah. you know, but the NIV study Bible and the ESV study Bible, both of those, um, their footnotes, uh, really try to give you some of the, uh, background information into the particular, uh, particular passages or verses. Um, and, uh, I'm, I prefer the NIV to the ESV. Um, just kind of is my, is my preference, um, but uh, there's a if yeah there's just there's there's just so many so many things so many ways that we can we can get some of this access. We don't have to become you know full blown historians, right? But as we try to as we seek to be people who try to take the New Testament seriously, we we at the very least need to make a good faith attempt to do some of this work. Um, you know, some of us are, you know, some of us have advanced degrees so, and, and that's, and that's a very small portion of, of us. Um, but, uh, even if we, you know, even if we're not getting a, a, you know, a master's degree in, in Bible, uh, we, as we, as everyday Christians, can can still access some of this. We can still we can still take this seriously. We don't have to go like I'm going to go deeper because partially I have because I have a greater responsibility to go deeper, right? Um, right. As a pastor, if I am out here just shaping the scriptures in my own image, uh, the damage that I can do is 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 huge. Um, you know, but for you know, for, for you guys, for Amy, for, you know, people in our, you know, just, just people in our congregation who are or people who are just interested in trying to study the Bible. Um, you know, there, there's still a, we still want to, we still want to try to figure some of this stuff out so that we're not making the scriptures in our own image. Um, but, you know, we also don't have to be completely overwhelmed by feeling like we have to, uh, do a deep dive as some sort of professional historian, because um, that's also that's just not realistic. Um, so, but there's, but to do just a little bit of the work, even even just you know, even just just grabbing an old like a, a New Testament survey or something as a book to uh, to have on your shelf. Um, to to give to give you some of the background so you can read a little bit of it um, is is really helpful uh, just just to have a little bit of the knowledge right just to have a little bit of an access to their story so that so that every approach to the New Testament every time you approach the Bible you're not just looking at it through a, a 21st century uh, Christian lens. Um, because when we do that, that's when, and that's when we slide into things like prosperity gospel, or you know, we we very quickly begin to to move move away from 
from the heart of Jesus and try to make the scriptures make us feel good and fit into fit into our lives as opposed to us being changed and transformed uh, by the by the life and teaching of, of Christ. So, but but that's what this is for too, right? Is is being exposed. Just the fact that you've been exposed to this tonight is more than it's it's more than you know most Christians have been exposed to ever. Just in just in what we're doing on Sunday nights um, or on Wednesday nights, it's you know there's there's a lot of information here, and the exposure for you guys is is huge. And uh, and think you know, and it's it's all here digitally you can watch it again and read it again and process through it and um, which <laughs> yeah. is you know which is which is hopefully going to be a helpful tool um as yeah. as time goes by so i have a question yeah okay um when you were talking about the passage and you said you know jesus meant one of two things carrying this coin was an affront to god give it back or caesar shouldn't get everything he deserves, including retribution. So did they understand that's what he was saying? I think so. I mean, yeah. I think that's why they were amazed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because, because he didn't, he didn't go down the, he didn't go down the pay or don't pay. He, yeah. he kind of did this, like he, he tapped into their story, right? Where they were like, Whoa, wait a minute. What just happened here? We just caught a curveball that we didn't see coming. And so they were amazed. Like, I think there's so much subtext there. And, um, and I think that's You're right. very different than what we've normally have heard. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, yeah. I mean, you, you think about I me, mean, think about just, just t conversations you have with, with friends, right? Um, we use subtext all the time. I mean, when I make the when I made earlier, when I made the the crack about Ohio State fans and Michigan fans getting together to to make a Michigan State fan feel bad, everybody giggled because that's a subtext that we all understood, right? But if somebody a thousand years from now hears that, they're gonna be like, "Ooh, well, the Ohio State must have been this, and the Michigan must have been this, and like, you know." They would told they're gonna they would potentially totally miss the subtext, um, and that's where doing the historical work helps us try to get to to some of that some of that shorthand subtext that's happening in the scriptures um, because they're written at a time and a place to a specific people, right? So, um, so yeah, which is it's it's wild, it's wild. So well, I think history is exciting when you read the Bible and you can look back at history. I, I think it pulls it all together in a way. Mm -hmm. I love it when something new comes out or that we have always heard, but and we take it by faith. But then when there's something behind it that we can find out through archaeological discoveries and so forth, I think it's so exciting. Absolutely, absolutely totally agree which why would, yeah. they, why would they have had caesar's mother on the other side of the coin um it i i don't i don't know um i mean from my from my reading that was just kind of kind of part of it um you know depending on 
exact. I'm trying to remember the. We just talked about this a few weeks ago. Um, uh, but it that that coin may have been the with the the Caesar whose mom was still pretty pretty active and engaged, and mm. so you know if if he's divine and she's his mother, then she too must be divine in some way. So it's oh. you know. So they still have these coins. I mean, yep, they still exist. Oh yeah, you can you can see you can see these coins. There's a uh, in that if you ever grab hold of this New Testament in its world book, they've got a picture of they've got a picture of of one of those tribute coins okay. uh, in there. Uh, so yeah, hmm. it's they've been found you know in archaeological digs and that kind of thing. So so what exactly is a tribute coin? So they would uh, they would make everybody had different coins. Um, so you didn't so necessarily every have these ruler these, would have their own. Yeah, and and yeah, then okay. what would happen is, you know, if you wanted to to show your, you know, kind of your loyalty to a particular ruler, um, then you would uh, you would put your money, you'd create your money uh, as as a tribute to him. So you'd put him on your coins, and it would it would be a be a tribute to to that particular ruler. Kind of like they have presidents on some of our coins. Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. Very similar. Okay. Yep. So. All right. <laughs> well, ladies, thank you for, for being on with me. And, uh, Thank as you, we, yeah, absolutely. Thank and as, you. as we, as we wrap this up, just want to remind everybody that we will be back next Wednesday night, June, 16th at 7 p.m. We'll live stream on Facebook, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube. Um, you know, we're, we're live streaming everywhere. If you want to be in the Zoom room to be a part of the conversation like you heard here at the end of the podcast, uh, boy, would love to have you be a part of that. Just reach out to me and I will make sure that you get a link uh, to, 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 the Zoom, uh, to the Zoom room. So, uh, until until next week, love well, my friends. <laughs>